Good morning. Thanks, Moses, and our team for leading us. I'm glad to be here with you this morning without a guitar. Our son, uh, when I sat down this, just a minute ago, he was like, uh, Dad, like, you're supposed to be. And I'm like, no, 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 it's good. We're all good. We're all good. Uh, yeah, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20. Pull up your phone uh, and turn to Exodus 20. We are going to continue in our study of Exodus, but more specifically, our study of the Ten Commandments. We are going to be on commandment number six today. But before we do that, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a recap because we are entering the second half of the commandments. So we've learned, if you've been out a little bit uh, during the summer, the first five weeks, first five commandments, we had that uh, you have no other gods before me, the first commandment, have no idols, the second one, uh, the third one is don't take the Lord's name in vain. The fourth one, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And the fifth one, last week, honor your father and mother. So in that, you're going to see a little bit of progression, even with commandment number five, where the first three or four, really, even with remember the Sabbath, are dealing with how we interact with God, how we relate to God, the things that we ought to do and not do as it relates to our relationship to God. Then at five, you see uh, this shift towards the elders, those who are over us, our parents, how we relate to them. And then with this back half of the commandments, you'll see how we relate with our brothers and sisters, those around us. Uh, so, but even with that, um, we, we won't just talk about how can sinners get along better with other sinners. No, we're gonna actually, uh, with each commandment, see how this exposes issues of the sinful heart and hopefully, prayerfully, they will provide for us an exhortation to, uh, to love one another in a way that shows the love of Christ to those around us, to the glory of God. Um, so Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, we'll look at our text real quick. It's only four words, or at least my translation is. It is, you shall not murder. That's a good one to, to get to talk on, right? Uh, you shall not murder. Uh, I learned the Ten Commandments with hand gestures. I don't know, how many, has anybody done that? Learned them with hand gestures? No, okay, awesome. About to teach you commandment number six. This is the best one to learn. Uh, so if everybody will put up a number six like this. This is a crowd favorite. This is how you remember commandment number six. Bang, don't murder. Okay, you got it? You won't remember what you did yesterday, but you'll remember commandment number six forever and ever. Uh, so now that you've learned the commandment, we'll, we'll actually uh, look at it. It, seem, it does seem like a pretty cut and dry commandment, right? Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Uh, but even with a few words, we will uh, find a lot to consider today. Uh, two main topics, or two main uh, headings, I guess, that we will look at, and then beneath those, two subpoints for each one. The first main heading is that we want to understand the commandment. We want to understand the commandment. But to do this, we're going to really explore how the Israelites would have likely heard or understood this commandment when it was first given to them. Uh, not necessarily how we would think to look at it in 2023. Uh, but to do this, we're going to need to zero in on one word in particular. It's the word for mur murder, the Hebrew word for murder. And I talked to Orr beforehand, and he was basically like, good luck with it, you know, because it involves a lot of sounds. But it's raksach, is my, my aim. It was okay. That's okay. That's pretty good. You would have turned around. You'd been like, I think I know what he's saying. Uh, that's the word for murder that we're going to look at. It occurs 47 times in the Old Testament. Uh, and just as a spoiler alert, it is never a good thing. Whenever it gets mur uh, murdered, whenever it gets mentioned, it is always, always really bad. Uh, but understanding this word will really help us to understand what the commandment would have meant to the Israelites and really what, what it means 
to us as well. Uh, and it's going to also help us make a distinction between murder and other killings, which sounds weird, but just hold on, we're going to get there. Uh, so in looking at this word, there are two things that we want to look at uh, specifically as we seek to understand the commandment. The first one is that murder is always unjustifiable. Murder is always unjustifiable. It is unlawful, it's immoral, it is void of any justification whatsoever. Now there is an interpretation, some people like to interpret uh, commandment number six uh, by kind of laying it over all kinds of killing, say all killing is wrong, all killing is unjustified. Uh, surely this commandment prohibits such things, right? But there's also this reality that we have in scripture, instances all throughout the Bible where we see God calling for justified killings. You think of individuals, David and Goliath, entire nations, Joshua in, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 20, where God is, is like, leave nothing alive, destroy the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Exodus 22, there's actually a qualification for self-defense. So are these things in conflict with one another? But when we see these instances of, of capital punishment or war, or justified killing called upon by the Lord, we must not miss this point that it's always in response to sin. It's a means by which the Lord was accomplishing his will. These justifications or qualifications are not giving man license to exert his will, man's will. Rather, they reveal to us the seriousness of man's own sin and remind us that our God, the one who is just, uh, detests sin. If the Lord calls for it, it is absolutely justified and right. Murder, on the other hand, has no justification whatsoever. It is not a response to sin, it is an act of sin. It's an act of attempting to thwart God's will. And just as we remember it's the Lord who's established what is just and what isn't, we also remember, just as we've sung, that you give life. He is the author of life. Because the gift of life comes from him, it is he who has the authority to end life or decide when life should end. One commentary that I came across put it this way. It says, for a person to take the life of another based on their own authority is tantamount to usurping God's place as the sovereign king. Also, humans are made in the image of God, Genesis 1, uh, to represent his rule on earth. To take away a human life destroys that which God has intended to represent him. Murder is not a response to sin. It is an act of sin, and thus it is always unjustifiable. It's operating outside of what God has made allowance for, and it conflicts with what he has commanded. There's also an interesting use of, of that word for murder in the Old Testament, uh, uh, interesting is a weird word. It's a terrible use of it, but it's, it refers to causing death due to carelessness or negligence, both of which are unjustifiable. You know, when we see instances on the news where we read about uh, instances of child neglect or uh, of drunk driving, things that have caused the death of another, what do we do? We, we, we weep. We just look and we see this is horrible. That you see the injustice in it. You see the wrong that is right there, the lack of regard for another person. So murder is always unjustifiable, and murder, secondly, is often intentional. So while the Israelites would have undoubtedly known uh, that careless or negligent use of the word, it would have likely been heard more so in light of an intentional act. 
one with premeditation, one with forethought, uh, which really only underscores the wicked nature of the act that's being described, the act that the commandment is addressing. Oftentimes that word is referring to moments when someone has taken revenge on another person, taken their life as an act of revenge. You know, when I think about this intentional act of murder in scripture, I think about David so often uh, in many of his Psalms when he's describing what he is up against and what he is asking the Lord to, uh, to release him from or deliver him from. Psalm 31, he says, for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. Psalm 35, um, sorry, that was Psalm 31. Psalm 35, let, me, or let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. I think about Jesus. Uh, Matthew 26, this is right when Jesus is nearing the end of his time here on earth, and he has just predicted the imminent death that he will face. And we see in this passage, the chief priests and the elders are gathered in the palace of the high priest. And the passage says that they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Murderers, they give thought to their evil plans. They devise, they plot, they scheme, they seek to end life. There is intent. So when the Israelites heard, you shall not murder, they would have heard a word that was just loaded. It was packed with wickedness and violence and evil intent and malice, recklessness, carelessness, vengefulness, all of these terrible things. Just as we mentioned a minute ago that murder is an act that seeks to circumvent God's just authority, they would have undoubtedly heard uh, something along the lines of, hey, uh, you shall not take things into your own hands. You shall not repay evil for evil. You shall not decide who you think should live and die. You shall not murder. They would have heard the Lord clearly marking all things and all people as his. Uh, and so with the understanding of what this commandment would have uh, meant to the Israelites, we now want to consider uh, a little bit more uh, heavy section, right? The second section, we've sought to understand the commandment. Now we want to examine the heart. Uh, the other day, uh, a few weeks ago, I was riding in the car with my two boys, and we were at the intersection of uh, 463 and Highland Colony in Madison. We're, I think we we're probably going to Walgreens or something. They called enough times. We're like, fine, we'll go pick up the prescription. You know, like one of those things. And so we were going... And uh, we're sitting there behind another car, another truck, and the light turns green. And I'm talking, like I'm chatting with the boys, and so I'm not, you know, overly concerned. If you're at the front of the line, you're really, you don't want to be late, you know? And so uh, the light turns green, I kind of notice it, and then I look away, and I look back again, and the guy's still sitting there, and I start saying, like, oh, come on, buddy, get off your phone. Like, let's get off our phone. You know, now's a good time to drive. And then the light goes yellow, and you're like, oh, no, we missed the cycle. And one of my sons, who, who will remain nameless, he said, dum-dum, you know? And so, and which I was thinking the same thing. I was like, yeah, he is a dum-dum. But I was like, no, buddy, we're like, we don't call names. We don't, wanna, we don't wanna call names to people. And he said, well, he didn't hear me. And I was like, okay, fair point. But then in a great act of parenting, I seized the moment. And we've talked about this before. You know, when you say something to your, you're correcting your child and you just, you can feel the words leave your lips and you're like, yeah, I heard it, I know. 
I know, I'm doing the same thing. Uh, I told him, well, there's two things that happen there. One uh, is when you call somebody a name, uh, you could really hurt their feelings. You can make them feel bad, and that's not good. But the second thing that's always true is that you thought that. You felt that in your heart. You thought that in your mind. Uh, you know, we can't focus solely on the obvious and heinous outward act of murder. Now, if this were all that Commandment 6 taught us, uh, we could all pretty happily walk away from church today feeling pretty good about ourselves, right? Uh, Jen Wilkin, who is a great resource for the ten, uh, studying the Ten Commandments in her book, Ten Words to Live By, she put it this way. She said, the sixth word taken by itself can feel like a reprieve in the middle of a courtroom trial, a moment to draw a breath of relief and say, well, at least I haven't done that. If asked to point to one of the Ten Commandments, we can say with confidence we have never broken. Most of us would respond with this one, right? I haven't murdered anybody. I've never made it on the nightly news. Nobody's ever shared a, a story about me on Facebook about me committing some sort of terrible atrocity. I'm not nearly that bad. That one really doesn't have to like completely apply to me. But you see, there, uh, there's an issue with this kind of thinking. Uh, because not only does our sinful condition, our heart condition, lead us to outward obvious sins, it also can cause us to become blind to our own inward and perhaps hidden sin. It causes us to lower the bar. It seeks to justify our wrong actions, create circumstances where our bad is okay, our evil is reasonable, our wickedness is normal, it provides a framework for approving of our sin. It causes us to lose a right perspective of how truly sinful we are. It blinds us to us. Before Christ, that's, that's how all of us were. That's how we thought, that's how we acted. Uh, we were blind by sin, we were blind to our own sin. That's why we can sing uh, a hymn that says, sings about amazing grace. It says, I once was blind, but now I see. Um, by the work of the Spirit in us, we have seen our sinfulness. We repented of it. We found forgiveness in Christ. But even still, we fight this sinful lowering of the bar. We wrestle in the flesh. Our sinful condition can cause us to drift and create for us blind spots that lead us to say, well, that one doesn't really apply to me. I'm good. You know, Jesus, he understood where these blind spots were, and he wasted no time in shining a light on them, calling that sin out into the light. And so as we as we consider what it means to examine the heart, uh, let's look to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. This is verses 21 through 22. This is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to turn there or write it down. Matthew 5, starting at verse 21. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Ouch, right? Jesus, in just a few words, he exposes the heart of the sixth commandment, and that when we look at the issue of murder, we see uh, two things here. One, the root is anger. 
the root is anger. Now, anger is a perfectly normal emotion. It's albeit a, a, a negative emotion that we feel in our emotions, their reactions to things going on around us, in us, to us. So anger in and of itself, it's not sinful, but it can quickly, quickly lead us there if not properly dealt with, if not properly handled, if not reconciled, if not processed, if not coped with correctly. You know, if anger was sin, uh, we wouldn't have the words of Paul in Ephesians 4 where he says, be angry and do not sin. There's allowance for anger, certainly a righteous anger, a response to an injustice or a sin or an evilness or a wickedness that we see, but even a righteous anger can lead us to a place of sin. To understand the bad places where this root of anger can lead us, um, we want to look again to Scripture and not too far into Scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 4. You're going to get your work out today. If you want to flip back to Genesis chapter 4, this is the story of Cain and Abel. You've probably heard it, but we are going to look at it once again, because uh, it's really the first real display of the rot that can take over uh, in a person, anger, taking over a person, beginning with verse 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. I'm, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So in this story, uh, we see that Cain's path to murder began with his anger. We see that anger, that anger was stirred because the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, not his. And even when the Lord chose to address this directly with them in verse 6, he says, hey, why are you angry? If you do well, you'll be accepted too, right? Uh, and when God warned Cain of the consequences of really leaning into his anger, he said it was crouching and waiting for him. None of this dissuaded him uh, from acting out of anger towards his brother. His anger spiraled into this unrestrained act of rage against his brother, resulting in Abel's death. 
We see that curse that was placed on Cain. The ground will no longer yield to you its strength, and he'll be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. We see Cain's grief over, overcome him when confronted with his sin to the point where now he fears for his own life from, from his family and from those that find out. And yet we see, and this only underscores, that it's the Lord who decides who lives and dies and, and his will uh, there. We see the Lord protecting him, saying, saying, not so. If anybody lays a hand on you, it's vengeance that's coming for them. You know, this story, it's cautionary for all of us. The same root of anger that grew within Cain, and it's capable of entangling and overtaking you and me. Again, Jen Wilkin, uh, she talks about anger, and she says anger is not really the problem, not mere anger, but anger that is nursed, anger that's indulged, anger that is gratified. So this is why Jesus spent time addressing anger. It crouches. It waits to strike. It's a dangerous root that can quickly grow in our hearts and our lives. Jesus also addresses another issue here. He's tackling man's proclivity to simply follow the law, to our tendency to do the bare minimum of what's technically right. The Pharisees and those listening at the time would have acted just like you and me. I haven't killed anyone. I'm good, man. I've done that one followed the commandment. They understood the commandment, or so they thought they did, uh, but they couldn't understand the truth that was undergirding the commandment. So hop back in the car with me. Um, we have speed limits, right? And we all are diligent in following those speed limits. If it's 35, we go 34 and not, not us, right? It's just me who's perfect that way, no? Why do we have speed limits? We have speed limits because driving can be dangerous. It can be dangerous to you, it can be dangerous to those around you. Well, why does that matter? Well, because life is valuable, it's important. The life of others counts. And so, that truth drives us to enact laws that help to protect against it. The Pharisees, they were seeing the law at the surface, and technically in their own minds, they were following it, we're following the speed limit, but they were missing the truth in other ways that was undergirding that commandment, and so they were not following the law. So while the Pharisees were bragging about how, how lovely their branches were, look at the leaves we have, Jesus was pointing to the root, and he was attacking it. He was saying, you're missing this. The root is anger, and leading on now, the fruit is sin. The root is anger, and the fruit is sin. James chapter 1, it says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, that let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That was James 1, 19 through 20. Anger that is nursed, anger that is indulged, gratified, does not produce righteousness. It produces in us sin. So Jesus progresses from addressing this inward emotion, everyone who's angry, uh, and he quickly outworks it. He says, if you call your brother a fool, insulting them, showing the, the cause and its consequences. Have you ever insulted anyone? These are some good, good questions. You ever maybe not today, not yet. No, we'll give it time. Maybe in a few weeks, I think it's eight weeks when football season kicks off, there'll be insults just flying, right? Yeah? Okay, roll time. 
Um, where am I? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no. Uh, Jesus, he addresses our insults towards one another. And we might think, well, I thought the whole sticks and stones may break my bones. Words will never hurt me. That was good enough. My, my son called someone a dum-dum, me thinking it at the same time. But Jesus is also teaching in this that, that uh, just as our words can have an edifying effect, a building up effect of, of someone, think Ephesians 4, that uh, we should only say what is helpful for building up one another uh, in need, bringing grace to those who listen. They can also, our words can also have a devaluing, uh, deconstructing, de-edifying, if that's a word, effect on someone. They can destroy a person, just as murder does. And this sort of outworking of anger, especially anger that is prolonged and left to grow and fester, or is nursed or is watered and, and encouraged to grow, it can produce in us a fruit of contempt which places us at a point where persons or people groups are utterly devalued. They are lessened in their personhood in our eyes. They're degraded to the lowest form. Jesus illustrates this parallel that was parked right in everyone's blind spot. Parallel between murder and words and actions that are rooted in anger. He's saying, how can you say that you value life. You love other people. You view others as image bearers created in the image of the heavenly father and at the same time take their life for no reason. At the same time insult them, demean them, violently in their, their existence or speak in, of them in a way that shows that you view them as less than human. They are below your consideration. To murder and to act in anger towards someone requires of us the lessening or the total removal of value of that person in our eyes. This is what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 5. The fruit of sin our anger uh, produces may not be as sensational or as horrific as murder. It does not catch the same headlines, right? But it is sinful and destructive nonetheless. Once anger is taken root, it bears the fruit of sin. If we look around our world and our society, we see evidence of this root of anger being nursed, encouraged, and the fruit that is being, that is being grown. You know, we live in a, a world and a society uh, that promotes and profits off of anger. Our news channels are comprised of 24-hour cycles of arguing and shouting and debating and our social media algorithms, they put front and center every single day when you, as soon as you wake up, conflict, disagreement, violence. While some topics are very good for us to debate, especially ones that, that have to deal with our faith, they're very good to, to debate and share ideas and bring perspectives. What's being sold to the consumer at home is conflict, it's anger. What's being promoted and encouraged is anger and hatred towards those with whom you disagree. A disagreement is peddled to us through endless streams of shouting matches on TV and political vitriol. That's the norm for us now, this us versus them mentality. It's reinforced at every turn. But you know, our contempt for people that we disagree with, or our contempt for others, has a way of disguising itself as virtuous and moral and righteous, and it elevates us by pushing others down. But we shouldn't be mistaken that while our contempt may win us points in a debate 
make us feel like we've made the case, we've won the argument. It always brings with it casualties. It does not carry the banner of Christ. It does not reflect the love of the Father. Yes, yes, it is okay to disagree. I disagree. Talk to me about anything. I could probably argue both sides of it. Amen, Gino? Okay. But, but, carry into each argument, discussion, an abundance of grace. Think back to that passage from Ephesians. Yes, we can differ on our politics, but we should never lose sight of the image bearer that you're disagreeing with, the person who is every bit in need of Christ as you are, the person that was formed in their mother's womb, the person that's been made to carry the Father's image. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You want to reflect Christ. Love your brother. Don't hate him. You want to win a debate or display the gospel? Well, then put to death your contempt. Don't feed your anger. Don't indulge the flesh. Don't gratify that anger. Speak words of grace. And you know, if it's not our politics, uh, it's conflict in relationships, it's violence, it's gore, it's revenge and backbiting and all of this that's packaged for consumption on our TV sets. Violence and rage is a source of entertainment for us on every streaming platform. Our eyes are far too often bombarded with the celebration and the promotion of the outworking of anger and contempt. I uh, heard someone say one time that when you log on to Netflix, eventually when you log on to Netflix, it'll give you two options, cake or murder, right? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. But we must, as followers of Christ, work daily to rid ourselves of gratifying our anger, stirring up our resentments, fostering the growth of our contempt for others. If not, we run the risk of becoming like those who we, we stream, those who we shake our heads at, you know, on MSNBC or Fox or CNN or whatever. We become like those who, who commit murder in our own hearts. So how do we respond to this kind of text? Jesus, he doesn't just drop the grenade and walk away. He actually points in a direction. He gives instruction. He, he says, this is the way you should go. So back in Matthew 5, picking up where we left off at verse 23, he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer you a gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus was calling those he was teaching to repent, to reconcile with one another, to make peace. So there's, there are a lot of ways we can respond, but today... Um, I know Chad said a few weeks ago, he, there's not been a message in this that he's done where his toes aren't broken by the time he gets up here, and this is certainly true for me. But maybe your, your move that you make is pulling out that phone, and that's fine. If, you don't, if, if that's what you need to do right now, pull out the phone and, and apologize, or make peace, or reconcile the person you haven't talked to in a long time and you've just gotten used to ignoring the issue with them, to make it right. Maybe you need to respond to the gospel. 
you know, as I was studying this, I was reminded of something, that this commandment reminds us of the fall. There's no death apart from sin, whether it be murder or accidental or sickness. All of it is because sin is in the world and we live in a fallen and broken world. It's not right, and we know that. And we see no greater picture of, of death and the result of sin than the cross. And if, uh, if you're not a believer, we share the gospel every week. And so this is what we believe. We believe that every person in this room, you, me, everybody holding an instrument, uh, all of us, young and old, we've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all murdered in our heart, all of us. And uh, the punishment that was necessary for that sin, scripture tells us the wage of that sin is death. It's a death that we deserved. We had earned that on our account. But God, who is rich in mercy, abounding in love, and incredibly patient with us, he did not leave us in that sin, but he sent his son, Christ Jesus, to the earth uh, to live a perfect life, a life without sin. And uh, he knew as he was sent that the end of that road would be at a cross where on that cross he would say, I will take the sins of the world upon me and I will pay that wage. I will take it. So Christ did just that. He died on the cross. He was fully dead. For three days, he was as dead as every dead person who's ever died was. He was in a grave that was borrowed because he wouldn't need it for long. We know this. Because after three days, the father looked at him and was satisfied with that sacrifice. He was satisfied with the blood that was shed and the, the price that was paid for the sins of man. And because of that, he raised Christ from the dead by his power. And we believe that Christ was, was raised and is now seated at the right hand of the father. And he's been given a name that's above every other name. So if you have not followed Christ or if, uh, I don't really know how to put this. If you've come to church a lot, um, being around the gospel or near the gospel, being around worship or near to worship, proximity does not mean salvation. If you have not decided to follow Jesus, to come and repent of sin and say, God, I need your forgiveness. I need life then do that. We're gonna have people that will gather over here as a room that's set aside for prayer. I know standing up and walking can be awkward, so you can stand there, sit there, pray, pull out your phone, call somebody, whatever you gotta do, let's respond. And for all of us, there's always good reason to sing. I know as a worship boy, I, uh, I love to sing, but we have a lamb that was slain on our behalf, the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. And so let's respond, let's sing to him, let's give him our praise today.